Let's pray together as we stand. Praise to you indeed, O Lord. Uh, praise to you for your mighty compassion, uh, your grace, and your abounding love. Uh, praise to you for the God you are. Uh, praise to you for the way you have made that known to us in your Son. And we pray, Father, now that in your compassion, in your love for us, uh, that you would speak to us. Uh, speak that we may know you, uh, know you more, and in knowing you, live for you. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, please turn in your Bibles uh, to Titus chapter 3 as we continue this uh, series. And we've reached uh, chapter 3, page 1199 of uh, the Church Bibles, Titus chapter 3. And we're actually going to be focusing in on verses uh, 3 to 8 this morning. Uh, We will come back next week. We're going to zoom in on uh, verses 1 and 2 alongside some other things. So uh, we're not not skipping them, uh, but we will will come back to them uh, next week. Titus chapter 3, verses uh, 3 to 7, especially page 1199. Now, as you're finding that, uh, as we've gone through this series, what what we've essentially seen is that this little letter, this tiny little letter in the New Testament uh, to Titus, this uh, minister in the church in Crete, is a letter all about radical change, a change brought about by the most powerful agent of change this world has ever and will ever see. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've seen in recent weeks is how that gospel, the gospel of Jesus, can bring change to absolutely anyone. Uh, younger women, older women, older men, younger men, we saw in chapter 2, workers, you name it, it changes us. But what we're going to see today is that this gospel doesn't just change individuals, you and I, on our own, but, and it doesn't even change just whole churches or whole communities of people, whole cities. God's ambition uh, through the gospel of his son is to bring change to the entire creation. Uh, his ambition is cosmic He is bringing about through the gospel of his son a cosmic revolution. Nothing short of that. And while we're talking about revolutions, let me tell you about Natalia Dimitruk. Her name may well be familiar to you. She's the hero of the Orange Revolution uh, back in 2005 in the Ukraine. In late uh, 2004, the uh, Ukraine held presidential elections. There were two main candidates, the the, uh, incumbent president, who'd been uh, president for some time, and uh, the election was massively rigged in favour of this incumbent president. Uh, Now, despite the unease that people felt that yet another election had been rigged and yet again he had uh, got back into power, despite that unease, uh, there was a, a growing sense that it would just be business as usual. This always happens, on we go. That was until Natalia stepped onto the scene. She had a simple job, a humble job really. She was given the job each night to translate the news for deaf viewers uh, on the state-run news media. And so uh, that night as the glorious news of yet another victory for the sitting president was being broadcast, Natalia began her translation. It's a lie, she said. Don't believe them. We must protest. She did this again and again as each uh, news, uh, news uh, uh, was run. Each time this announcement was made, she would say it again. It's a lie. Don't believe them. We must protest. Uh, her quiet resistance uh, in the face of huge odds sparked the Orange Revolution, uh, which saw a change in rule, changed an entire nation. One humble revolutionary changed a nation. As uh, the days that followed, the streets of Kiev were filled by up to 100 
thousand people protesting against this, hundreds of thousands. And this passage that we're looking at today is another call to revolution, a call to be uh, humble revolutionaries. And I think it's a call that will only make sense, only move our hearts to be part of this revolution if we know the story behind the revolution, the story of the gospel. It's a story that if you look down to verse 8 of our passage, we're told is a trustworthy story. It's a true story, a story that we must stress. And so here it is, the story behind our revolution, the revolution, in fact, of everything. And as we begin to see the story of it, we're beginning in verse 3 with uh, seeing why the revolution was needed in the first place. And as we do that, we're beginning to see our part in the story. See, this is not just a story like the Orange Revolution of something that is not a, uh, we're not a part of. This has to do with us. And most of us, I think, if we're honest, uh, when we think about the stories of our lives, like the stories of our life where we're painted in a good light, uh, stories of our better days, our, our glory days, our golden moments, our sort of CV days, the sort of things you'd put on a CV, we, we like those stories. And we might, if somebody recounts a story about us like that, feign some sort of embarrassment, or don't do that. Uh, But secretly we love it, thinking, I like this story, I'm the hero. But this is not a story like that, because this is a true story. It is, as George Orwell once said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act, and that is what our God does for us in this passage So here is the truth of where you and I fit into the story of the revolution of this world. Listen as our God tells us the truth in verse 3. Do you see it there? At one time, we too, also us, that's how the translation should be. Uh, God is very keen to stress that this isn't about other people, this is about you and I. At one time, we too, also us, yes, you, were foolish, disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's God's verdict on our world, on us, on you and I. And this is not a picture of the worst of humankind either. He's not saying at one time there were some people in the world who were like that. This is you. This is me. You and I are in this car crash. Before our God, we together were foolish, disobedient. Foolish to think that there either was no God or if there was, I needed to have nothing to do with him. Foolish when he called me to life with him, uh, I ignored it. Deceived and enslaved. Even when we glimpse that there must be more to life than just little old me, even when we glimpse that, we're powerless to do anything about it. Driven, we're told in verse 3, by passions, by desires that we're sure will satisfy us if we could just have that. But in the end, they are passions, as we saw last week, that are passions of people curved in on themselves. Ultimately, that's us, isn't it? Selfish people. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6 when he talks about our passion for wealth, for prosperity. A passion, he says, that will pierce us with many griefs. And does not the Western world know much of that grief at the moment? And uh, even further in verse 3, we're told the nature of our relationships in a world where we are ultimately curved in on ourselves, uh, where we're driven by these passions. Ultimately, we live in this world as competitors. Competition shaped by malice and envy. They're horrible terms, aren't they? 
horrible thing to have that be a description of you or me. I am malicious or envious. That's not me. But it is, isn't it? Remember, this is a true story. Whether it be something as simple as uh, for a parent clamouring for our child's rights at school, wanting them to be ever promoted, ever pushed forward. Or perhaps it's our attitude uh, when we're on the phone to a difficult person in a customer service line and we're, we're getting more and more frustrated, malicious thoughts at least, if not words. Or how easily we pull someone else down at work. We're competitors. And even here... Even here in this place, as God's people, his community, remember this is a true story. You ever envied someone here? Felt the pang of envy or even malice? Our world, uh, we're told in verse 3, with relationships that are more marked with hate than love. We don't want to admit that, but that's God's verdict on our world. The true story that God tells of our world is of a totally dysfunctional world. And I reckon when we have uh, glimpses of that as a world, as, as the human race, glimpses of things being all bent out of shape, we think we can fix it. We think there must be a human solution, a way for us to overcome this, a revolution that we can be about. But this world is far more dysfunctional than we could imagine and it is beyond our grasp to do anything about it. There is something right at the heart of humanity that is at, at fault, at problem, that no amount of policies or laws or endeavours will change. Now, this is the way it was once described to me. The problem with our world is that there is a goat in the tank. Now, let me explain. A few years ago, I've told this story before, but for me it helps me to understand the nature of our world. A few years ago, uh, some friends of mine, we, we went away to a farm, we went camping, and uh, on, this, uh, on this farm the only source of water was a, a sort of a corrugated iron tank and at the bottom of the tank was a tap, and so during the, during the week that we were there, whenever we needed water for whatever purpose, that's uh, what we do. We, we'd turn the tap and uh, out would come the water uh, for our coffee and tea, for cooking our dinner, whatever it was. And uh, as the week went on, uh, there was a sort of a growing feeling amongst us that there was something not right about the water. And for a while there, I think what we convinced ourselves as city slickers that uh, maybe this was country water, this was fresh water, and we'd never tasted anything like it. That's why it tasted so funny to us. But nearing the end of the week, we said, no, 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 that, that can't be what it is. So one of us uh, got up, uh, there was a ladder on the side of the tank, climbed up the tank and looked into the tank, and uh, it looked fine at first, but there at the very bottom of the tank was a goat, a decaying goat. Now, I have no idea how a goat managed to get into the corrugated iron tank, for starters, but no amount of changing of the water, draining the tank, filling it again, putting cordial in, you could do what you want, there was still a goat in the tank and that's our world the dysfunction the corruption in our world is far deeper than just a policy change or a vow to be better towards one another or whatever we might come up with Romans 8 our other reading tells us that this world is corrupt decaying just like that goat and God sees that and it offends him he is a holy God he is a good God who has created a good world He sees our corruption and we're told in Romans 8, in judgment, he subjects our world to frustration, to that corruption, to futility. Each pang of frustration we feel in our world, each groan of a world that doesn't work the way it should, should tell us that something is desperately wrong, that our sin offends him, a holy God, more than we could possibly imagine. 
But, and here is the wonder of the story in front of us, the story of this revolution, his response to that corruption, that decay, his response is far more radical than any we could imagine or achieve. Here at the bottom of the tank, here where the goat lies, God begins a change of cosmic dimensions. For as Romans 8 also says, uh, when he subjected creation to frustration, he did so in judgment, yes, but also in hope. Did you hear that? In hope. In hope of making all things new. Of moving this world to, and this whole creation to a, a, a point where it would be born again. It would start again. Romans 8 declares to us that that revolution is already underway. And we're told there that this revolution of all things is to begin with us, we who were the things of verse 3. And so let me say, if you're looking for a sign of change for the better in our world, uh, if you're looking for a sign of hope, uh, don't look for meetings between Angela Merkel and David Cameron or some medical breakthrough. No, the place to look is to see what God is doing in the lives of people. People being made new. These new creations are, we're told in Romans 8, the first fruits of the change that will come over everything. You see, the story of God's revolution of all things is an epic one. He aims to make everything new. And it's going to begin with us. And so how did this revolution that begins with us, how did it come to pass? Well, it's like every revolution, really. Every revolution begins with a plot, doesn't it? I imagine in the Orange Revolution, as a few people sitting at home saw Natalia reading out the news, translating it, a few of them would have started to plot together, why don't we go to the streets? Maybe a few at first, then hundreds, then hundreds of thousands filled Kiev. Well, God's revolution of all things began with a plot too, this hope, this hope of freedom from a world with desires that destroy us, a world marked by malice and envy, of changing all of that. Do you see where the plot for that change began? Have a look back in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. You'll see it there. It wasn't when things got so bad that God said, I think we should do something about this. Things have got out of hand. Now we're told there that our God, God the Father, the Son and the Spirit, promised this hope before the beginning of time. It's a wonderful revelation about our God, isn't it? You think about what what God is like. I don't know what your picture of God is like if you're a Christian here this morning or perhaps even not a Christian and you've perhaps got an idea of what God is like. If there is a God, well, here's the, the Bible's revelation of him he has been since the basement of time plotting for your good plotting for your good and how did he do it we'll have a look at verses four to six and you see two aspects of how really the agent of this revolution and the means firstly the agent or the hero if you like of the revolution every revolution needs a hero don't they there was the natalia of the orange revolution there's the the lone man in tiananmen square Now, if this story was a human story, we'd paint ourselves as the hero. But remember, this is non-fiction. This is history, and all human heroes, even the best of them, disappoint, don't they? And not just our heroes, not just the, the great ones that we might think will bring change, but all of us. None of us could bring this about. Do you see there, verse 5? This revolution did not and will not come about because of the righteous things we have done. And we're the hero in our minds all too often. You notice that of yourself? Maybe it's just me, but I doubt it. Notice how often we think the problem with our world is other people. If other people could just get their act together and be a bit more like me, then, well, it'd all be fine. 
But this did not happen because of our righteous deeds. That's the way we think, not just as individuals, but uh, whole governments think this way. We're encouraged to be the big society. Maybe through enough education, enough community action, enough activities together, we can do things. We can change anything. Yeah? No, verse 5. This sort of change is not in our grasp. It did not happen because of our righteous deeds. What Paul does for us here is he drops the bomb on the big society. And even our own heroic self-delusions, when it comes to this sort of change, for you, for me, for my family, for our city, it's not in our power or inclination. Remember, no amount of cordial will change this water. No education, no vows to treat people well, no laws prohibiting racism or sacking the FIFA president is going to change those things. It's not because of our righteous deeds. And I reckon, Christians, we must take care here not to think we're immune to this sort of false thinking. The devil loves to play on our tendency to paint ourselves as the hero of the story. How easy it is to look at verse 3, to look at the description of what we once were and think, yeah, I was once that, but hey, I worked it out. I got it right. Clever little old me. I believe that they didn't. But before we head out on our victory lap, hear verse 5 loud and clear. God is not saying about this revolution, I am excluding your worst deeds. Let's just forget your mistakes. Now he's saying, I'm excluding your best deeds, your best moments, your best motives, uh, the CV moments, all of that has no credit when it comes to the moment when you were made new. Now something else came into this corrupt world. Something else came into our lives to radically change us. Do you see it there in verse 5? Mercy. It is, as uh, one of my favourite verses in the scriptures says, Romans 9.16, As you prepare for your victory lap, remember this. It is not your willing nor your running, but the God who is merciful. Not your willing nor your running, but God's mercy. And we've seen our contribution, verse 3, verse 4. We see God's side, uh, this mercy writ large for us. Two descriptions of the mercy there for us in verse 4. How's he done it? He's done it in his kindness, or more literally, goodness. Goodness, that's what God is. He is good. I've got to be honest, that sounds all a bit mediocre, doesn't it? On a sort of a scale of good, better, best, to hear that God is good is, well, I'm looking for something better than that. But remember who he is. He's God. He gave you life and breath and everything else. He is utterly in charge of your life. He caused you to come into being and he will be there when you take your last breath. He is your creator. And so when the Bible tells you that he is good, it matters, doesn't it? The one who holds complete sway over your life is good. That's a relief. And his goodness is not some mediocre measure. It's not that we sort of measure God's goodness against some other measure. No, he is the unit of measure. God is good. And scripture tells us uh, that his goodness is expressed in the second description we have here in verse 4, in his love. More literally, in his philanthropy. And that's what the word translated in verse 4 as love literally is, philanthropia. It's two Greek words, love of humans. That's what God is like. Again, what an amazing picture of our God. What is God like? He is a lover of people. Now the truth is, if God is a philanthropist, that is not going to do us much good if his philanthropy is like ours. Now human philanthropy is thin, isn't it? And it's patchy and it's biased. Uh, my version of philanthropy is what happens uh, on the times I go shopping at Waitrose. I don't know whether you've experienced this. At the end of it, they, they give you this little green disc. 
It took me a while to work out what to do with the green disc. I've got a collection of them at home before I worked out what I was supposed to do with them. But there I was at the, uh, the front door, and there's three little boxes, three causes that you can give your green disc to. And uh, usually what happens is when I go there is that there's usually one that has a lot more than the others, and then there's one that's sort of dragging behind nothing. You know, I'm going to put one in the, the one with very few discs because that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> that's human philanthropy. But God's philanthropy is not like that. It is utterly committed to our good. He loves humans. He loves humanity. And he doesn't love what we love about being humans. He loves the very good creation that he made. He loves the humanity to be the way he made it, blessed and full of life. That's what he's committed to. And so the hero of this revolution is good and he loves. But again, that's not much good if he never acts upon that. Uh, but wonderfully, do you see that word in verse 4? This goodness, this love has appeared. Such a crucial word. It changes everything. If he had been good and a lover of humanity in his nature and never appeared, that would do us no good at all. But it is his arrival that first Christmas. It is his going public, the appearing, the incarnation on this broken, groaning planet of the goodness and love of God that saves us when he showed up. And when he showed up, what means did he use to bring about this radical revolution? Well, two things in verses 5 and 6, uh, washing and renewal. Two things that we're both told to come through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Two things that happened because of the cross. This is why we're always talking about the cross. This is why verse 8 says stress these things. This is why uh, when the little children came under baptism earlier in the service, they came under the sign of the cross. This is the very epicentre of the revolution. This is how it happened. The appearing of the goodness and philanthropy of our God was the appearing of Jesus Christ, appearing to die on a cross for us, who loved us and gave himself for us. You see, the revolution that our God is bringing to our world is not some vague philosophy or idea. It is a real man, our God, our Saviour, appearing to die for us. And so as I come to Jesus, who in his goodness and love gave himself for me, as I come to him in faith, as I unite myself to him by faith, I say, I'm with you, knowing my need for change, knowing only he can bring it, he gives me new life. It is, as 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, anyone who is in Christ, anybody who's with him is a new creation. And the two aspects of that new creation we see here, cleansing and renewal, washing and renewal, it's what he's been promising since before time. He promises it all the way through time. Uh, back in Ezekiel, uh, centuries before he appeared, he said this in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's a promise uh, Jesus himself, when he appeared, repeated in John 3 verse 5, when speaking to a Pharisee, he said, no one can enter this new creation, this kingdom of God, unless he is born of water and of spirit. And what's wonderful about that uh, statement by Jesus, is he's saying it to a Pharisee, he's saying it to a religious man, someone who's got all this worked out. He says, no, 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 you don't get there by that. You get there by my washing and renewal. And now in Titus we're told that has happened in Jesus Christ. Firstly, he has washed us, totally clean, a new creation. It's wonderful, isn't it? We're not used to that sort of new start. Life is not really about fresh starts, is it, as much as we'd like it to be. 
our mistakes that we've made in the past, our damage, our, our worst days that we want to be rid of, follow us. But God says, because of Jesus' death on the cross, you are clean indeed. His own blood has washed you. That's what it costs. You are clean. But there's a problem, isn't there? While this is a wonderful hope for us to be washed clean, washed new, and that there is the hope that all creation will be washed like that. Remember the tank? We tried that. We drained the water. We put clean water in, but there's still a goat in the tank. Clean all you want. But while you have a decaying goat in your tank, the problem remains. And that's true of us. This is a heart problem. Give me a fresh start. Give me as many new starts as you like. Give me a second, third, fourth, fiftieth chance. I'm still going to make the same mistakes. I am, verse 3, a man curved in. This is a heart problem. But wonderfully, here comes the second aspect of this change God brings about. Promised in Ezekiel, promised by the risen Lord Jesus, a promise of a new heart, a promise of the gift of his very spirit. Having come to us and made us clean by the cross, he does more than that. He gives us his very spirit. You see there, he pours it into us. You have a new nature. The goat is out of the tank. The spirit has come. And so, Christian, be confident. You who have come to Christ, not only are you clean, you have new resources to live rightly. New resources to enable you to flourish, not your resources, of course, God's, so you can trust them. And he doesn't give just a little, do you see it there? He doesn't give a miserly amount of his spirit to each one of us. He pours it out generously. And so as we come to a close, we've seen why the revolution was needed. We've seen how he did it. And now finally, in verse 7, we see the purpose of it all. He saved us so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Having been justified by his grace, we find ourselves safe on the other side of God's rightful judgment, saved from that. Not because of our righteous deeds, but his mercy. Free, out of the dock, out of the the courtroom, free to go. But more than that, we are free to stay. Stay as heirs, as children, Sons of God, Romans 8 calls us. A God who is good and loves, heirs with hope. We live now, these days, those who have come to Christ as children of the revolution, changed by the mighty mercy of our God, living in a fallen world as the first fruits of what's to come. And so we wait. We wait in hope as his children, as all creation groans, and we with it, Romans 8 says. We wait for the fulfilment of this revolution, a whole creation born again, even our bodies made new. What a privilege we have to live as children of this revolution as everything changes. I reckon as we close, it's the sort of privilege that should catch your heart off guard and leave you very humble. Let me ask you, this gospel that we are to stress, this gospel that we are to tell each other again and again, every time you hear it, time and time again, does it cause you to tremble? Does it humble you? The gospel will do that if you're listening. It should humble you because of who you once were, because of how much that grieved and offended your God, because of how much he loved you in spite of that. It should humble you to think of how much damage you have done in this world that need not have been. You did that. So did I. 
It should humble you because when change came to you, you brought nothing to the table. It should humble you because you have been loved. Do you get that? You've been loved by God. Genuine love will humble you. Doesn't doesn't that do that to you? When somebody genuinely expresses love or shows love to you, you feel the unworthiness of it. I remember when uh, Liz, my wife, before we started going out, I was sort of slowly warming up to the, the point where I was going to ask her out. It was going to happen in the next year or two. I'd get round to it. And then one night we were driving back from a party together and she's in the passenger seat and uh, she just blurted it out, uh, confessed her love. I was too chicken to do the same. But I've got to tell you, I was lost for words. That's what love does. And in these recent weeks, as we as a family have tried to sort of stay in the country with visa issues, the, the love that we've been shown by the church family and especially uh, the wardens who've been helping us, uh, you feel the unworthiness of it. But we must keep telling each other this story. You are loved by God. That will humble you. And then finally this. It should humble you that you've been given a new start. How you needed that how we didn't deserve it. Only someone who has forgotten who they were, who they still are all too often, will be unhumbled by this, this precious gift of forgiveness. And I saw a documentary just this week about the reconciliation between people caught up in the Rwandan massacre in 1994. 850,000 people killed in 100 days. And the documentary told the story of one of those who had been part of the killing coming face to face with a woman of the family he had slaughtered. And he stood before her in, a, in, a, in an empty room that was filled with the possessions, the shoes and the clothes of those who had been slaughtered. He stood before her and he said this, I am very sorry. I murdered your husband. I used a machete and I chopped your son until he died and I did not pause when I took your daughter's life as well. But now I am filled with sorrow. I cannot pay my debt. Yet somehow God has forgiven me. I I don't understand it. I don't think I ever will. Somehow God has given me a second chance. Please forgive me. Her response after some time, this child of the revolution, she said, God forgives you and so do I. Be humbled by the story of a God of the second chance who forgives even you. And if you hear that story and think, I am nothing like that man, do not forget it cost God just the same to forgive you, just the same, his son's life. Be humble by this story, this true story. Be humble that you have now another's heart beating inside you, the heart of the Spirit of God. The more we hear the story and believe, the more in humble confidence we will take great care, verse 8 says, great care to fill our waiting days with lives devoted to the things of this new creation, good things, revolutionary things. And that's what we'll see next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your glorious revolution revolution of the mighty mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, that we or many of us are those who have come to you and received a new start and a new heart. 
And we pray, Father, that you would make us humble by it. We pray for any here this morning who do not know that new start, that you would make clear to them your love for them and the tremendous, wonderful act that you have brought about in your Son to bring them back to you, made new. Amen.